This is the second part of the Year in Review podcast. If you missed part one, it should be in the feed uh, adjacent to this one. The biggest thing I found this year was the ability to argue well. It seemed like the most successful people, the most successful organizations, the most successful structures all had this ability to get to the heart of the matter, to find the truth in something via good arguments. In Rory Week, the series that we did that took up a full week on the blog about Rory Sutherland, we saw that it's important the way you phrase things. So if we can put something in the affirmative, that is something to do rather than something to avoid, we'll be more likely to do it. So that's why we say argue well rather than avoid yes men. Arguing well is doing, not avoiding. And here's how people suggested it this year. Matt Wallert says he likes to return to Oregon because it's the kind of place where you can argue with someone but still break bread, or in the Pacific Northwest case, drink beer. Good arguments don't have baggage. Charles Koch said they try to do this at his companies too. Remember, Koch said, the boss knows some things and the employees know other things. Both of these sets include important variables. In his book, Only the Paranoid Survive, Andy Grove said, you have to get out into the winds of the real world and see things. Within Bill Belichick's New England Patriots organization, an argument is rewarded. It isn't disagreeing for its own sake, but it's having an opinion. Jamie Dimon said he'll cancel meetings if people don't do the work required for having an ahead of the meeting. Good arguments, conversations, and meetings are all preceded by preparations. Ken Burns says that it's his name on the movies and on the business, but he encourages disagreement too. He says that his interns can voice contrary opinions if they are developed and relevant to the subject at hand. At Bridgewater, Ray Dalio calls this thoughtful disagreement. Dalio believes in it so much that he's built tools for people to share how they disagree and their domain accuracy. If someone is known for having accurate intuitions about an area, their arguments are granted more weight. Adam Grant said much the same thing in his interview with Shane Parrish. Aim for friendly competition, says Grant, where you try to make each other better. This kind of environment requires giving rather than taking. Grant explained this in the podcast and elaborated in his books. Leaders have to create an environment for this. Greg Popovich models it by disagreeing with his boss, General Manager R.C. Buford, and encouraging it from people under him. Other general managers have said the same thing, and that you should look for this thoughtful disagreement when you hire people. Find people who can argue well. This isn't easy, said John Montgomery. Often we want to hire people we like. Those people look like us, think like us, and talk like us. Agreement is comfortable, but as the adage goes, if we're all thinking the same, no one is thinking. Disagree and be ready for discomfort. This surprised Dan Egan. Good arguments chip away at our beliefs about the world. They make us uncomfortable because they challenge things we think we know. The archetype of argument might be Dwight Eisenhower, who kept his inner circle running in circles. Ike never tipped his hand, especially in cards, about what he was thinking. Instead, he egged on one point of view in a morning meeting and took the other side in the afternoon. The presidency may have been a demotion from Supreme Allied Commander, but Ike knew his subordinates were more likely to bend at the knee than stand in opposition. Good arguments aren't off the cuff. They're deeper. 
They're heart-of-the-matter problems. Too many smiles or too many tears are two signs that you aren't arguing well. 2. America's founding king is personal responsibility. Yet, conditions matter too. Introduce the same situation in different ways, and the person will have different responses. Kara Swisher thought that maybe this contributed to the problem on social media. Without a real name or avatar, people act differently. The same goes for sharing. If it's easier to tweet, to post, to snap, or to gram, we will. If it's easier, it's more frequent. I'd never taken a picture of food before Instagram. Defaults are an example of conditions that matter. When schools switch apples for chips at the checkout, students take and mostly eat more apples. However, when they replace apple slices with french fries earlier in line, students switch back from the default to fries. When Richard Jefferson moved to San Diego, he loved the weather, but it was a terrible place to live if you were an NBA player. San Diego was a relaxing town, and that's not what he needed, so he moved to Los Angeles. Meb Faber found that the 10-year-plus holding period for angel investing instilled patience. The design of the system, the conditions of the system for an angel investment made him behave in a better way. Not getting his capital back was a good thing. Cal Newport writes about this in his book, Deep Work. This kind of effort is so important, it should dominate your day, but we get distracted by shiny objects. Newport creates the conditions where he has blinders that are designed to block out these kinds of things. For Alice Waters, the conditions changed her life. When she graduated high school, she was kind of a wandering student. She got okay grades, but she never really applied herself. Not knowing what to do, Alice Waters did what many 18-year-olds do, and she went to college. Her first school was Santa Barbara, and she lived the partying, beach-going life, but she kind of felt like there was something more. When a friend said that she was transferring to Berkeley, Waters went with her, and this changed her life forever. In fact, it probably changed a large part of American cuisine, too, just because she moved from one part of California to another. When Elliot Kip Koji and his Nike compatriots tried to run a marathon in two hours, they picked a Low, flat, easy-turning course. Those were the conditions that really mattered for how he performed. Conditions were a huge part of the Rory Sutherland series, too. Sutherland wants us to ask, what are the conditions that change how people perceive something? What are the conditions that make a train ride enjoyable? If conditions can make changes... We can design conditions for positive changes. Investors, athletes, and executives all make choices ahead of time. Generally speaking, we want to make good things easier and make bad things more difficult. Thanks to technology, tracking how you spend your time or money is easy. Use Wes Gray's advice and plan and system too. For me, this means logging out of Twitter, removing it from my phone, and creating a long password. These choices don't prevent my using it, but do keep me from picking this low-hanging fruit. Conditions matter, and conditions are malleable. This was something that I realized is true for discipline as well. Discipline doesn't necessarily seem like it's something where you can design it around and create conditions so you are disciplined, but it really is. As an early Christmas gift, I got Jocko Willing's book, 
Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. And in that book, Willink talks about discipline, and he writes about its virtues. But he also writes about his home gym and the exercises that he does. And whether Willink is conscious of it or not, the fact that his gym is at his house, and the fact that he has these exercises that he does again and again, those are conditions that have created discipline. It's easier for him to work out in those conditions. It's easier to be disciplined in those conditions, too. 3. No matter who is involved with our project, there's always stakeholders that can have an influence on the things that we're doing. Elliot Kipkoji said that 100% of me is nothing compared to 1% of my team. Even solo efforts like running a marathon take a team to get ready for. The best results come when those stakeholders are aligned. Investors know this. Permanent capital like Trish and James Higgins Brent Bishore and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are the pinnacle example of this. They are the stakeholders. It's a committee of nearly one. It's sort of like when you want to organize a dinner for a group of people. The fewer people there are, the easier it is to figure out where you want to eat. But if you're on vacation with your extended family, there's only one dinner option, and it's pizza. Other investors have similar situations. Wes Gray calls it educated capital. Thomas Russo found business owners who could be his investor in business owners. John Montgomery uses stewardship questions as a screening tool. Good investment managers will follow Barry Ritholtz and Josh Brown's lead and communicate with their investors on a regular basis about how they think about something and why. They're pre-filtering the kind of clients they have so they can do better work with clients who want them to do that kind of work. Investors are like spouses. It may be enriching to lie about the size of your returns, but the truth will come out. Non-investing businesses have stakeholders too. They're often called customers. Andy Radcliffe said that successful startups must preach to the converted. They've reached the shut up and take my money meme stage. Customer groups aren't the only collections of stakeholders. The GMs I wrote about, Ben Falk and Jeff Luno, all had to answer to owners, peers, fans, and the media. The more groups there are, like those general managers in sports have, the more questions they have to answer, the more non-on-the-business things that they're working on. Non-professional stakeholders exist too, their family and friends. This is why Marcus Lemonis advocates for people to start businesses when they're younger rather than older. Not having kids, he says, is a competitive advantage. Morgan Housel said that few stakeholders is part of being Elon Musk or any CEO. The stakeholders of reading or coaching soccer take a backseat to the business. We only have 168 hours every week, and each stakeholder you have in your life gets some part of that. Ken Grossman gave a first-hand account of this when he started the Sierra Nevada Beer Company, and he wondered if he should be home more to see his kids grow up. Malcolm Gladwell clarified this point about support in the Freakonomics podcast. No, no, I, I think that's a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. I totally think it's important in what you do. But remember, in, when I was writing uh, Outliers, uh, I was only interested in the hours because I was interested in this notion about social support. Mm-hmm. That portion of, of Outliers was, was simply getting people to properly appreciate um, the kinds of sacrifices that are necessary for someone to become great. That chapter was not supposed to be a how-to manual 
for how to achieve deliberate practice. Everyone in our life makes it better or worse, makes things easier or more difficult to do. Some people have a greater intensity than others. Success comes from filtering out the wrong stakeholders as best you can and then limiting the existing ones to only those that you enjoy and that are helpful and that are loving and that help you become a better person or that run a better business. From companies to families, the best results come from everyone not only rowing in the right direction but wanting to be in the boat. Four. The last thing that I wanted to touch on for this 2017 year in review is probably the most important. If ideas were like trails through the woods, this would be the one that I walked on most often and had the most enjoyable time on it. It's the one with the best views, the best hills. It's the one that has had the biggest impact on my own life, and it's the ability and the importance of empathy. Let's use sports as an example. Athletes and teams have an interesting existence. One hindrance of using player tracking data in sports right now is limited knowledge. Analysts don't know what play was called, which makes it hard to track if a player succeeded. In my notes, I call this partial view and media bullshit. Talking heads are paid for entertainment, not accuracy, and that missing connection to what the play was is a missing understanding. It's like empathy, but in sport, commentary. Aaron Rodgers agreed in an interview when he said, quote, When somebody thinks of you a certain way that's not real, or says something about you that's not true, I, you know, that's not me. You're not seeing me the right way, end quote. That's what empathy is. It's seeing someone the right way. It's walking a mile in their shoes. And the sports media regularly does this. Andre Agassi said that much of his advertising image was not his idea. His story is really closer to a teenage movie star than a gifted athlete. His story is one where you look back and wonder why more didn't go wrong. Part of Agassi's friction with the media and culture of tennis was because observers had a partial view. That is, observers didn't have a deep understanding, and they didn't have empathy. Richard Jefferson went through something similar before his 2004 Olympics. That's the bronze medal team. That team, he says, was cobbled together at the last moment with a poor coaching choice. People didn't understand this, said Jefferson, that they had flaccid chemistry. They just assumed that these were professional basketball players and they could just come together and win, when that's not how it works. The partial media view was something John Urschel confronted when he retired from the NFL after a brain damage study was released. Urschel was on the Freakonomics podcast, and he was surprised at how many interpretations of his story there were, and how none of them fully encompassed what he was going through. Non-athletes face this too. When the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team signed players with bad stats, the media became the real Pirates. They didn't get it. Or rather, they didn't have the same data. They didn't understand. Executives on the Pirates were prioritizing different stats. It looked Like, players weren't very good, but they were quite good at what the team valued, at what the team wanted. This was something Sam Hinkie explained to Ben Falk in their conversation, too. Empathy is difficult, I think, because it begins with humility. I don't know everything. It continues with curiosity. What else is there to know? And it ends unresolved. I can't know everything. 
Empathy is like the tree trunk that many things I learned grew from. It's required to be different, to trust but verify, to be curious, to have external objectivity. Situations matter. Arguing while stakeholders and talking with your customers all are built around the importance of empathy. That's what I learned this year. Thanks for listening.